Welcome to the PZNP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm your host, Becky Carson, Pediatric Nurse Practitioner and Assistant Professor at the Catholic University of America. In our mini-series on cognitive bias in healthcare, we've learned all about how our brains work to create bias and the ways that this can lead to diagnostic error in healthcare settings. Now it's time to put our knowledge to work as we try to spot the zebras in the coming case study episodes. If you haven't already caught the last two episodes, I'd hit pause and listen to those first. If you're all caught up, let's talk about a sick kid. Remember that we use the metaphor of spotting the zebra in a pack of horses to compare the task of identifying the one sick kid who's masquerading with a primary care chief complaint. These cases are based on patients I encountered over the course of my career with some artistic freedoms taken to help transform the encounter into a podcast. I want to re-emphasize that the discussion of these cases is not meant to be judgmental. My hope is that by addressing the elephant in the room, that you can better consider the zebras and avoid the monkey business of cognitive bias. As we discuss the case, we'll start with the seemingly benign chief complaint and presentation. Since you already know the initial impression was wrong, Try to notice cognitive shortcomings and how you could have chosen a more evidence-based evaluation and management. We'll unfold the case and reveal the acute care diagnosis and the cognitive bias that blinded the original presentation. Lastly, we'll discuss some best practices to avoid such shortcomings in the first place. Our first case is a four-month-old female referred to the emergency department by her primary care provider for constipation. The patient is a full-term infant with no significant past medical history or surgical history who initially presented to the primary care provider the day prior with a complaint of no bowel movement for three days. The PCP evaluated the patient and sent her home with a diagnosis of infantile constipation. She re-presented the following day, still having not had a bowel movement, and the parental complaint of being more fussy and lethargic lately. Her weight demonstrated a one-pound weight loss since the day prior, which equated to about a 7% weight loss. She was refusing to eat, at which time the pediatrician referred her to the emergency department. The referral note from the PCP documented that there was now no bowel movement in four days. The parents were first-time parents. The patient appeared dehydrated and was refusing a bottle. Rectal exam was normal with stool in the rectal vault. In the emergency department, vital signs were a temp of 37.2, so 98.9 degrees Fahrenheit, heart rate of 165 beats per minute, a blood pressure of 141 over 105 in the right arm with a nursing note documenting that the patient was crying, a respiratory rate of 45 breaths per minute, and a saturation of 100% on room air. According to the first ED provider at Shift Change, Her review of systems was positive for fussiness and crying that was attributed to abdominal pain. There was no fever, cough, congestion, or rash. Diapers were decreased and are foul-smelling. Mother noted she was crying more, was less active, and that over the last two days, she hasn't seemed to want to swallow. She's an only child who lives at home with mom and dad. There are no sick contacts. She does not attend daycare. Family history is negative for any chronic diseases in parents or grandparents. Her immunizations are up to date. On exam, her mucous membranes appear dry. 
the abdomen is distended with mild tenderness. A KUB was obtained and read by radiology. Moderate gaseous distension of the colon, which can be seen in ileus. Small amount of stool in the colon. Further medical decision-making in the provider note states, quote, due to history of groaning yesterday and today, we'll check single quadrant ultrasound for intussusception. We'll check BMP, point of care glucose, urinalysis and culture, and blood culture. We'll give IV fluid bolus. Ordered glisten suppository for constipation, end quote. Okay, let's pause here because it feels like the patient's physical exam doesn't fit with the history or workup at all. We'll start with a summary statement and then think about what additional information would be helpful. So this is a full-term immunized four-month-old female with no significant past medical history who presents with four days without bowel movement, moderate to severe dehydration, and increasing irritability and lethargy with concern for dysphagia. On exam, she's afebrile, tachycardic, and has a distended, tender abdomen. Do you still have questions about the history and physical exam? I sure did. What else would you like to know? What doesn't fit the illness script of constipation? Can you identify any sources of cognitive bias? Our first big problem was the referral with a diagnosis. We're given this diagnosis of constipation to work up but the patient doesn't match the illness script of the condition. This is an example of anchoring, where one particular piece of information is made the most important early in the diagnostic process. From there, other information is ignored or discounted completely, and no adjustments to the diagnosis are made. In our case, no bowel movement for four days was the single most important feature of the referral but that doesn't fit with the poor feeding, dehydration, lethargy, and dysphagia. We also had priming related to the first-time parents in the PCP's referral. This suggests that the parents don't know their infant well enough to identify when something is wrong. Instead, they must be mistaken in their concern, just overly anxious and unfamiliar with how to take care of an infant. In the ED, there was a combination of premature closure, in which the original diagnosis was accepted, and authority bias, where the ED provider didn't want to disagree with the PCP's original diagnosis, despite noting some obvious abnormalities. Next, let's think about the big gaps in the history and what else you'd like to know. It remains unclear to me as to why the patient was experiencing these symptoms in the first place, because Constipation in healthy kids tends to occur around changes in diet, activity, development, or hydration. What's the infant's typical stooling pattern? Did she stool in the first 48 hours of life? Constipation that starts early in life can be a red flag, so we need to pursue questions around stooling in the first few months that might give us clues as to underlying pathology. What was her feeding history? Is she breastfed, formula-fed, How much and how often does she eat? Were there any recent changes, or was there an attempt to start solid foods? What's her typical activity like, and what is she objectively doing in comparison now? Give me more details about that difficulty swallowing. Does she grimace in pain, or can she not coordinate the suck and swallow? Think to yourself, why would all of this develop now? Where do they live? What do mom and dad do for a living? 
What are her exposures and risk factors? On her exam, we have an abnormal heart rate, and that seems more likely attributable to her dehydration than the nurse's note of the baby crying. Abnormal vital signs should always be re-examined. The x-ray didn't show constipation. Instead, there were dilated loops of bowel that were more concerning for some type of obstruction, ileus as suggested by the radiologist. The ED provider is still anchored on constipation, thus the glycerin suppository, despite no radiographic evidence of constipation. And yet there appears to be disorganized medical decision-making surrounding the differential diagnosis and further workup. Why does a constipated patient need IV fluids? much less a blood culture. A classic presentation of intussusception typically involves severe, inconsolable crying with an altered level of consciousness or sleepiness between attacks, rather than our less active baby with dehydration and difficulty swallowing. We have no emesis or current jelly stool to suggest telescoping bowel causing obstruction or necrosis. So the ultrasound will only show a snapshot in time at the ileocecal valve and is unlikely to yield any meaningful diagnostic result, which, spoiler alert, it didn't. It's time to re-examine the patient and get further history. And this is where I came in. I walked into the room and my spidey senses were tingling off the wall. There were three nurses standing over the bed, frustrated at their inability to successfully obtain an IV because she was so dehydrated. Despite a needle poking in each extremity, the infant wasn't moving. Neurologically, she was limp, hypotonic with her head turned to the side, eyes closed and opening spontaneously to noise or pain. Her face was expressionless, and she was crying weakly through gurgled secretions that were pooling in her oropharynx. Are you scared yet? I was. Her fontanelle was soft and sunken. Pupils were equal, round, and sluggish, but reactive to light. Conjunctiva were non-erythematous. There's no discharge. Sclera were clear. TMs and nasal mucosa were normal. There were no lesions in her oropharynx. Tonsils are one plus without erythema or exudate. And there were pooled secretions in the oropharynx with drool draining from the lips. There's no generalized lymphadenopathy. She was clear to auscultation bilaterally with no increased work of breathing. Normal S1 and S2 with no murmurs, gallops, or rubs. She had two plus central pulses, weak peripheral pulses with clammy, mottled skin and four to five second capillary refill. Her abdomen was soft, non-tender, and distended, but not taut. And here's where I knew what was wrong. Her digital rectal exam showed virtually no rectal tone and no expulsion of stool upon removal of the gloved finger. Now, I don't know how many times you've ever had abnormal tone on a rectal exam. I certainly hadn't had any, but this was remarkable. In a tiny infant, there was plenty of room for my pinky finger, which I'm not accustomed to. There's barely room for a thermometer most of the time. So I knew that this was a grossly abnormal exam. Lastly, Her DTRs were 2 plus in the upper and lower extremities. By now, I was making knowing eyes at the charge nurse and asked her to get a pediatric emergency medicine, or PEM, attending to the bedside. As additional help was coming, I worked backwards using the physical exam to focus my line of further questioning. 
She was breastfed, usually 15 minutes per side every three hours. She had been developing normally and growing on a 50th percentile curve since birth and had been well prior to about four days ago when she just started being a little more fussy. Her typical stooling pattern was an easy applesauce consistency, yellow seedy stool about every other day. The fussiness turned to irritability and she was showing a poor suck, followed by a complete refusal to feed by turning the head away from the breast or bottle and today had been drooling. She stopped holding her head up and became increasingly limp and now not moving much over the last day. She was less animated and sleeping more. Mom is a stay-at-home parent. Dad is a carpenter. They live on a farm with a dog, two cats, cows, horses, and chickens. They've not started solid foods yet, and she's never had honey. By now, there was a team of professionals at the bedside. The beauty of a complicated case is the ability to involve the multidisciplinary team that expands your ability for adaptive expertise. You don't have to have the right answer at this point in the case study, but you should certainly be expanding the differential of this toxic appearing infant with marked neurologic deficits. What's on your differential? What would you like to order? Well, what we know is that this is a four-month-old, previously healthy infant with acute onset of poor intake leading to dehydration, hypotonia, a weak cry, facial weakness with pooling secretions, poor suck, decreased appendicular and axial tone, infrequent stooling but a non-surgical abdomen, and poor rectal tone. The differential diagnosis now includes a variety of neurologic etiologies, ranging from infection to genetic disorders, sepsis, meningitis, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, or ADEM, botulism, intracranial hemorrhage, or MASS, inborn error of metabolism, spinal muscle atrophy, congenital myasthenia, and Guillain-Barre syndrome. The emergency department care continued with fluid resuscitation, lumbar puncture, and airway support with frequent suctioning of her oral secretions. She was admitted to the PICU with a plan for brain MRI, nerve conduction study, electromyography, and tensilon tests for myasthenia gravis. However, upon further questioning, her father had recently raked up the soil of the horse ring at the stable, and he had several horses who were also displaying signs of muscle weakness. This made botulism highly suspicious as the anaerobic bacteria is naturally found in the soil. And if dad came home from the farm and held his sweet daughter with spores on his shirt, she could ingest the bacteria from the gastrointestinal route. So plans for empiric treatment began immediately before definitive testing even resulted. Botulism is a life-threatening disease caused by a toxin from the bacteria Clostridium botulinum that attacks the central nervous system by blocking the release of acetylcholine from nerve endings, leading to muscle paralysis. Foodborne botulism enters the body through contaminated canned foods or honey, and the disease-causing spores can also enter through open wounds. Review of systems from caregivers typically reports a few days of worsening feeding, constipation, lethargy, excessive drooling, and progressive weakness. On exam, you'll note symmetric neurologic deficits, such as expressionless face, ptosis, sluggish papillary response to light, a weak cry, and poor head control. 
gag, suck, and swallow reflexes progressively worsen and may disappear as the disease progresses. A key feature is that the weakness is cephalocaudal, meaning descending through the body. Patients can present with respiratory distress due to muscle paralysis, which can lead to respiratory failure. So intubation with mechanical ventilation might be needed in some cases. Treatment involves the IV administration of human botulism immunoglobulin from California in consultation with state health departments and the CDC. Our patient remained in the PICU for supportive care, including hemodynamic and respiratory monitoring, and received the IVIG within a day or so. She remained in the PICU for a week, but never needed intubation or ventilation. An NG tube provided enteral nutrition with breast milk until she was able to feed by mouth. She was discharged home with no sequelae and made a full recovery in the following weeks. Some children may have lasting deficits, which require rehab services. So our constipated four-month-old actually had infantile botulism from her father raking up the horse ring at the stable. How could we prevent the cognitive bias seen in this case of delayed diagnosis? Remember that there's no place for blame in this review because we know that this problem is multifactorial and complex. We need a systems-based approach to impact errors, but there's a paucity of literature on pediatric-specific interventions. However, I do think there were some obvious shortcomings that are easily addressed. Best practice number one, when a patient represents with the same complaint, repeat a complete history and the physical exam, opening up your differential diagnosis to the possibility for change. Since infantile botulism is a progressive neuromuscular disease, there was likely a progression of illness not appreciated on the first exam the day prior. But I was always taught that the more times a patient presents with the same symptoms, the more likely they are to have a severe diagnosis. So a best practice would be to welcome a new visit with brand new eyes. Because my digital rectal exam showed absolutely no tone just a few hours after being seen by the PCP, and we know that botulism worsens from head to toe, I suspect that the report of a normal digital rectal exam with stool in the rectal vault was actually from the day prior. Best practice number two, give objective handoffs. This is a gold standard in healthcare because otherwise a provider can be strongly anchored to a given diagnosis. By offering the referral with a given diagnosis mismatched from the illness script rather than the noted abnormalities that needed to be addressed, the PCP likely clouded the judgment of the first ED provider, which led to a delay in addressing the potentially lethal disease manifestations of botulism. And by labeling the family as, quote, first-time parents, the PCP minimized the family's concerns, which were incredibly valid given the progressive deterioration of their previously healthy infant. We should present patients with exam or investigation findings, rather than with a possible diagnosis or subjective details alone. Best practice number three, choose a consistent and structured strategy to work through your differential diagnosis that works for you. This could be going head to toe by systems, a rule in rule out methodology, or a mnemonic such as vitamins A, B, C, D, E, K to cover all the possible etiologies of diagnosis. This is not the same thing as diagnostic checklists, which are prone to error and have demonstrated no improvements in diagnostic error when used in the emergency department. 
I know you're asking, but what if I forget something in my structured differential diagnosis? You've already said that cognitive bias is a problem. Won't I miss it if it happens to me? Good thinking. Have you ever heard the phrase, two heads are better than one? Well, five heads are better than two. Remember when I notified the PEM attending? We also involved the PICU, neurology, and infectious disease consultants to help us manage the patient. This brings us to our final best practice number four. The NASM report on improving diagnostic error in healthcare recommended diagnostic teamwork involving the primary care provider, subspecialist, allied health providers, and nurses as one way to promote decision-making. Unfortunately, we don't yet have the literature to support the idea that a team-based approach to care changes outcomes related to diagnostic error. But that doesn't mean that teamwork doesn't make the dream work. It's just a great place to emphasize future research. I hope that you'll like, comment, and subscribe to the PEDSNP, where we focus on the practical application of evidence-based practice. There's no financial support or conflict of interest in this or any episode of the PEDSNP. You can see show notes and references at thepeedsnp.com. Tweet me at the PEDSNP or find me on Instagram at the PEDSNP podcast. Remember, this isn't just a podcast. Repeat your history and physical exam for the kids. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.